Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, episode 14. On the underground station platform, Jeremy and Valentina saw hundreds of people camped out, with all manner of tents and improvised structures surrounding them. Braziers sent out wisps of smoke. Brats rolled in the dust and screamed. Pale-faced men and women looked mournfully at one another. Dogs barked and cats slunk about, thin, starving. With his boot, Jeremy moved aside a number of barking dogs as he led Valentina up the platform slope. Between the mewling mass of humanity they walked, Jeremy wondering how to escape the press, uncertain of how to proceed. But then a blue-uniformed official raised a hand. Oh, sir. Jeremy breathed a sigh of relief. Dear fellow, he said, we walked along the tunnel yonder, hoping to find succor. He passed over the chit. Alas, I have no way of paying it. The official nodded. You're obviously a man of the refined classes. He handed back the chit, adding, I've no doubt you'll return to pay what you owe. Surprised, Jeremy nodded. Of course, on my honour. Where now, though, sir? This place is full of refugees from the hairy plague. Will you go outside? Perhaps. Valentina stepped forward and said, Tell me, is this Vauxhall Underground Station? Uh, that it is, madam. Have any of you heard tell of the trichologist? The expression on the face of the official darkened. Has his abode in Trichalopolis? He does, or so they say. Great palace of shining gold, up Heffalump and Castleway. You don't want to be going there, madam, not if you value your life. Why do you say that? Jeremy asked. Well, rumour says it's a dangerous place of spectral magic and vile doings. I'd steer well clear, sir. Where are you from? Anywho. Gaff Square. Chancery Underground Station's the one for you. I could direct you there, along the tunnels like. Jeremy shook his head. We've got to find the trichologist because we're working for the Royal Institute. A crikey. Special missions, is it? Tell you what, sir. I'll direct you to noise to the Heffalump and Castle Underground Station. If you emerge there, you might see the palace. Of course, I can't be certain. Directions would be most welcome advice, said Jeremy. But you should rest a while, I think, the official concluded. "'Cause it's very late-like. "'We'll breakfast you in a few hours, eh?' "'Again, most welcome.' "'And so, next morning, Jeremy and Valentina, "'dressed in salvaged clothes like two street urchins from the East End, "'found themselves carrying methane lanterns and a map "'as they walked along the damp tunnels of the underground, "'passing occasionally a ruined steam subterranean motive.' with feather bark house covered in cobwebs and jardiniere, nothing more than dry soil. They passed many rat-chewed bodies along the way, mostly cats and dogs, but also a few people, their mangled corpses dressed in the remains of their clothes. It was a depressing journey. After some hours, they saw the platform of the Heffalumpen Castle underground station, filled with human detritus, all sobbing and wailing. 
An official validated their chits, doffed his cap, then directed them up steps to the exit. Cheremy approached the glass turnstile with caution. Already he could smell shampoo. Outside the station exit, a vast thoroughfare of strawberry blonde hair ran, filling all of London Road from end to end. But when he looked north towards St George's Circus, he saw something extraordinary. There, he said, grasping Valentina's hand and squeezing it, Tricolopolis! It was a great coiffured palace, constructed entirely from blonde plaits, a hundred feet high or more, with seagulls and ravens flapping around its tiara-set summit. It shone like a pillar of gold in the morning sun, and the blue sky behind it was like pale lapis lazuli on a Fabergé original. Remarkable, Jeremy said. Dangerous, Valentina countered, supposedly. Alas, that we've lost the selenograph. But maybe there'll be other ways to communicate with thither too. Archimedean floating systems, for instance. Valentina pointed into the sun. I see some floating nearby. This district is occupied by many different types of people, it seems. Perhaps the trichologist is not a man of evil. Cheremy studied London Road. Noticing that further north, the hair had been pushed aside and retained with slides, so that a walkway existed, leading up to Trichalopolis. He led the way, wishing he had his gear with him, and a weapon. But perhaps here they would have to survive on wits alone. As they approached Trichalopolis, three guards, dressed in fright wigs, jumped out from behind a fancy hair clip. Who goes there? I am Jeremy Pantomile of Gough Square, and this is my lady Valentina Moondust of the House of Moondust. We seek the trichologist. On what business? That is between us and the trichologist. The guards seemed amused. After talking amongst themselves in low voices, one said, I'll take you there. Hand over your weapons. We carry none. What about your fists? Give me soft gloves and you'll be safe. Gloved, the pair followed the guards towards Trichalopolis. Valentina gestured again at the Archimedean floating systems and asked the guard, What manner of people fly them? All sorts, ma'am. Valentina indicated to Cheremy one in particular, shaped like a Tudor building, which flashed light as if from a heliograph. That one is heading towards us, she said. Cheremy nodded. To the guard, he said, It seems the trichologist is a tolerant man, happy to entertain the presence of various peoples in his vicinity. Would you say that was an accurate assessment? He's different things to different men. With that, they entered the palace. It was a most complex construction of intertwined, self-supporting plaits, blonde from top to bottom, including the roots. As they ascended, a stairway created from tight curls, the light of the sun reflected like liquid gold from the walls and floors. Six flights up they were taken to an antechamber, where they were told to recline on cushions made of bunched hairnets. They waited. Cheremy, nervous, tapped the fingers of one hand upon his knee. A man entered the room. He was short, slim, dressed in a vertical tabard and tight toolings. 
for boots, he wore a pair of fair nufflers. Jeremy estimated him to be middle-aged, but his hair, short and dark, seemed to have been dyed, and his skin had the too tight complexion of a vain marionette. Do I have the honour of speaking with the trichologist, he said. Indeed you do, Mr. Pantomile. You know my name? My guards recognised you from the social announcement in the Times. As for you, madame, a scion of the House of Moondust is always welcome. Sharami relaxed. The trichologist seemed almost human. He said, We've been sent here by the Royal Institute on an urgent mission. They hope to find the cause of the hairy plague and then return London to its former state. Can you help? You accuse me of being the cause? Uh, I don't know, sir. Your name would indicate so, but I make no assumptions. The trichologist clasped his hand behind his back and walked to the nearest open window, where he peered out into the gull-infested heavens. I am not the cause of the excess hair, Mr. Pantomile, nor do I know the cure. I live here, an ordinary man, uh, formerly the Heffalumpen Castle's most popular hairdresser, admittedly, trying to make sense of the emergency. Those are distressing tidings, Valentina said. What, then, is your best guess as to the cause of hairy London? There is a man, the trigologist replied. He paused, as if thinking, then continued. Uh, there is a man who some say could be the cause. He has no name. Some say he is an aristocrat. He's wealthy, certainly. But one thing I do know, this man is at war. I do not know if he's at war with the government, with the country, with the army. Maybe he's at war with himself. And all this hair is a result of his mind's inner workings. <laughs> he laughed, then added, No doubt the estimable Sigismund Freud would have something to say on the matter, but whether he remains in London or flew out to Vienna on an Austria-hung, I do not know. Your news fills me with dread, said Jeremy. I had hoped... There came shouts from the corridor outside, and then the soft thunking of the door being opened. Jeremy turned round and gasped. The police! Nobody move! I am Murchison Volume of the Yard. Nobody move, I said. So, Mr. Pantomile. Jeremy found himself trembling with rage. You clodhopper, he shouted. How dare you obstruct the work of the Royal Institute? The Institute, Murchison replied. My, I hadn't realised you worked for so august a body. <laughs> the Institute, oh, pardon me for intruding. I mean, I'm only legally entitled to stop criminals from performing their crimes. That's so unimportant compared to the work of the Institute. Compared with, Jeremy replied. Murchison's face turned red with fury. As for you, Moondust, 
he said. Your offence of springing an offender from jail carries the stiffest of sentences. You do not frighten me, Valentina replied. Oh, don't I? Don't I? We'll see about that. Officer, the trichologist said, this is private property, and you... Be quiet, Murchison yelled, or you will be arrested for something too. The trichologist withdrew. Valentina moved to the window and peered out. Sir, she said, gesturing at the view of London below her, we are trying to find the cause of the plague that soon, as food as water supplies run out, may destroy London and all we love. It is wise for the police to obstruct such work. London, Murchison replied, London? You don't even come from London. You're a bloody foreigner from the bloody moon. How dare you lecture me about London? And then, before Jeremy could move a muscle, he jumped forward and pushed Valentina out of the open window. She fell with a scream. <coughs> then, a distant thud. Jeremy shrieked and ran to the door. But Murchison, despite his girth, was nimble on his feet, and with a leap caught Jeremy's ankles and brought him to the ground. Jeremy kicked out, released himself, jumped to his feet and began running down the staircase with only the sound of that terrible scream in his mind. Valentina! He wailed as he ran out of the palace gates. There she was, motionless on the ground, her fall broken by a tress of hair. But surely she could not have survived such a fall. Then... Murchison, too, sped out from the palace gates, and Jeremy ran on until he was at her side, holding her in his arms, gasping, sobbing, calling her name. But she did not breathe. Her neck was broken. She was dead. Oh, God, Jeremy cried. Oh, sweet Mandragora, she's gone. My love, my new love, dead. Murchison strode up, grabbed his collar, and lifted him up. You make me sick, he said, weeping like, like a woman. You're worthless, Pantomile, and a feet milksop crumbled tyke with not a shred of bone in his back. Suicide club? With idiots like you as members, it should be the assisted suicide club. You haven't even got the courage to kill a fly, you pointless prank. Merch! Oh gosh, yes, I've got a good one for you, Pantomile. You half-wit girly. Yes, I've got a good one for you. Nobody escapes from Murchison volume of the yard. Nobody fools with good old Murchison. And do you know where I'm going to put you? Jeremy through his pain and snotty-nosed weeping, said, Where? <laughs> Bedlam. That's where you're going, my son. And you know what? People like you never get out alive. No! Mercy, I beg. I'm too young. But Charmy's pleading only sent Murchison into an apoplectic fit. Handcuffing Jeremy, he brought their faces so close the pair touched noses, then screamed, 
Bedlam's too bloody good for you. I should be taking you to hell. And with that, Sharami was dragged to the Tudor Archimedean floating system and taken away. Velvine stared in horror at the stampede of miniature animals pouring over the dais. Sylvia ran through the open exit, gone. Fred also stared at the horde. But Pertrand seemed to grasp that the end of the raid was nigh, and he jumped upon the nearest workstation, then hopped across the factory floor along the front line, as though the machines were stepping stones in a lake, avoiding the sharp little teeth of the horde as, with windmilling arms, he shouted, Retreat! But it was too late for Fred. Drowning beneath the menagerie, the last Belvine saw of him was two hands reaching for the sky, then nothing, amidst a rolling ball of teeth and fur. Pertrand jumped to the floor beside him. Run! He yelled. The animal horde raced toward them, scattering native workers as they did, whilst the monkeys screeched and chittered and jumped up and down in the workstations with their arms in the air. Velvine fired three shots at the menagerie, watching them halt like seawater against a harbor wall. Four bullets left, time to run. Following Pertrand, he leapt up the stairs two at a time, but there were many floors remaining. The menagerie followed, and the effort made him short of breath. For a few seconds halfway up, he paused to recover. No time for that, Pertrand shouted pointing down the stairwell. Velvine looked to see miniature tigers with green reflective eyes leading the pursuit. Behind them, lions, rhinos and gnu. By the time they reached the staircase to the roof, they were both exhausted. But they ascended anyway, panting and hoarse. Then their three colleagues stood beside them on the roof. As the tigers charged for the open door, Pertrand grabbed it, and slammed it shut. But because they had forced it to get in, all he could do to make it secure was lean a pile of tiles against it. Into the chameleonic Archimedean floating system, he gasped. But Velvine had seen something approaching through the air. What is it? he asked. Pertrand peered through the moonlit gloom. It's a flying something or other, he said. Pulling a handful of oddments from his pocket, he took a monocular, extended it, then looked through to say, It's a man on a flying fox, heading this way at top speed. Velvine said, Give me the monocular. He looked through it, then said, It is Lord Blackenor. He has been warned about the raid. We'll soon see about that, Bertrand snarled. Shoot him. What? Shoot him. He'll land on the roof right here. He's in range. Velvine raised the revolver, but found that he could not shoot. Though Lord Blackenor was but a hundred yards away and the eyes of the flying fox were like great moonstones, an easy target. Shoot, Pertrand insisted. I cannot. Pertrand rounded on him. Is it because he's a lord? Is that it? No, Velvine retorted. Of course it is not. It is because I will not shoot a man down in cold blood. Pertrand grabbed the revolver, turned, then fired. The flying fox stalled in the air, and Lord Blackenor leaned to one side as if riding a horse. Then 
the flying fox dived, wheeled, and turned again. But Pertrin shot two more times, whereupon it flew away, heading northwest. We can follow him, said Velvine. Yes, you're right, Pertrin said. Into the Machinora. The camouflage abilities of the thing will conceal us even better than night. But with five in the Machinora, their flight was sluggish. Velvine said, Bertrand, you stay with me. The rest of you, I'm going to drop off atop the roof of Euston Station. Return to the flat, Bertrand instructed them, and write an account of our raid for the Marxist-Leninist Times. Make sure we succeed. Now, scram! With only two in the Machinora, their flight was easier. But still, the flying fox outpaced them. By extrapolating Lord Blackenor's flight path, however, Bertrand ascertained that he was heading in a straight line for Regent's Park. London Zoo, Velvine said. You might be right. You have some scheme there. We'll track him. Velvine agreed. Lord Blackenall landed his flying fox in the elephant enclosure, and, just a few minutes behind, Velvine followed suit. As they leapt out to the Machinora, it transformed itself to the colour of moonlit mud. Lord Blackenor was lost in the maze of zoo buildings, however, so they had little choice but to walk at random and listen. But between the squawking of birds and the groaning of zebras, they heard nothing. And after ten minutes, thought they must have lost their quarry. Then Belvine heard something. A voice, he said. Nah, voices, Bertrand replied, coming from the Japanese house. They crept up to the long, low building and peered through a front window. Inside, Velvine saw something extraordinary. In the centre of a room stood a single bonsai tree on a great table, around which stood a number of miniature animals. So, that is how he makes them, Velvine breathed. It's a bonsaiulator. Bertrand pointed to the far corner of the room. Told you it was voices, he whispered. Velvine saw a group of shivering natives huddled together in a corner, all of them staring at Lord Blackenor, who was investigating the bonsai tree with a magnifying glass. No, Velvine said. Surely he cannot be shrinking men. It is inhumane. He's inhumane, Bertrand replied. We gotta stop him, Felvine agreed. Uh, but how, eh? There's only one of him and two of us, easy. And I got one bullet left, come on. Before Velvine could stop him, Bertrand leapt aside and stormed through the door, running into the bonsai room with his revolver raised. Velvine followed, making sure his mask remained firm upon his face. Lord Blackenor, Bertrand shouted. I'm doing a citizen's arrest on you for crimes against the working class. Hands up. Lord Blackenor stared at Bertrand, glanced at Velvine, then returned his gaze to the revolver. Is that loaded? He asked. Yep. Now move away from that there bonsai. Lord Blackenor remained where he was. I'm afraid there's more to consider than your revolver, my good man. I'm performing a vital government experiment, which you disrupt at your peril. I suspect a jail sentence would be in order if word got out of what you were doing. 
Move away from that bonsai or I fire. Go on then, shoot me. Velvine stood horrified, unable to speak, even to move for fear of revealing himself. Pertrand's arm began to tremble. Lord Blackenor picked something up from the table with a pair of chopsticks, then took a step forward. So you do not have the courage to shoot an innocent man. I very much suspected that would be the case. Stand still. Lord Blackenor took another step forward. Now hand over the revolver, my good man, and perhaps I shall be lenient with you. What the zoo authorities would think of this, I really do not know. Pertrand fired. Lord Blackenor bent over, grunted, then leaned upon the table. Blood oozed from his stomach, but then he looked up, raised the chopsticks, and threw something, a dart, it seemed to Velvine, that struck Pertrand in the neck, bit, then wriggled. Pertrand pulled it off at once, but it was too late. A great, he croaked, and with that fell to the floor. Lord Blackenor turned to Velvine. Whoever you are, he groaned. Have mercy upon me and fetch help. I am wounded. You've been indulging in Stephen Palmer's Hairy London. Narrated by R.D. Watson.